remember we were on tour with the Lumineers and, you know, it seemed like things with COVID were, were was at first, it was the beginning of the year, I guess 2020, early 2020. And we were touring in the United States and Canada. And I was, I was living in Denver, Colorado at the time. And we were on tour and things seemed to be like, oh, it's, you know, what is this thing? It's a bad flu, and now it's getting really bad. And it was like very uh, <laughs> preaching of the choir, you know, what the hell is going on right now and how bad is it? And then um, got I've, I remember vividly, you know, being like this is the last show and we're all going home. And we were in Omaha, Nebraska at the time, and we went home back to Denver. And... It became apparent very quickly that we were going to be home not for weeks, but for months and maybe even longer. And it was very scary and very uh, jarring to say the least. And I actually, during that time, you know, I thought to myself, well, everybody's going to have a COVID story. And as we get older, everybody's going to be asked, what did we do during that time? It'd be good to have a good answer. <laughs> um, and, you know, I spent a lot of time working on the sound piano, piano. It was something that I had not intended on working for at least another year or two, but we were home in Denver and my wife, Francesca, was like, you know, why don't you record that now? We have a piano, you have some microphones. And I was like, no, I want to do it in a real studio. You know, I don't want to do it in my house. I don't want to make a COVID record. I, these songs, you know, these piano ideas I've been sitting on for the better part of a decade. I want to do them right and I want to do it in a cool way. So there was actually a studio I called in the Denver area. And when I called them, I it was very apparent, like, this might not be the highest COVID protocol, so maybe I should do it in my house. And I had to, you know, I was missing a few pieces of key equipment, so I had to order stuff. And that took, like, you know, whereas one thing maybe took one or two days, everything took five or ten days, and it was just a crazy um, time delay and time suck. So I worked remotely with uh, the, this engineer, David Barron, on making Piano Piano during that time. And that was just a really cool moment. When that got finished, um, at the end, probably fall of that year, I moved to Italy. And now I'm going on three years uh, from that time. And yeah, I became an Italian citizen this year. And, uh, you know, I'm here with my wife and our two young kids and we're really happy. As I found out that we were going to do this, I was going through and, you know, looking for some some interviews that you had done, you know, relatively contemporary ones. And then I, I landed on the the tiny desk performance that you did. I don't know how long it takes for them to upload those things, but the date on that video was February 29th, 2020. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, we were doing stuff, you know, right. I, like, and it was like, we were doing stuff until it became you know, a problem. Again, it was really hard to know. We were also, you know, we're changing different state to state. We were in Canada at one point. And so, yeah, we were I mean, we, yeah, doing that, that tiny desk session, which was, by the way, really cool to finally have done that. It was something that we wanted to do for a long time. To do that tiny desk session with the Lumineers was incredible. But, um, yeah, getting sent home, it was just like, whoa, this is, uh, this is happening. So the piano record as a concept predates all of this? Yeah, I mean, I would say that probably, yeah, some of the ideas go back 10 or 12 years. I mean, 
And they're just, you know, there's voice memos. I have a lot of voice memos, record keeping, and I have a good memory of about, to an extent, <laughs> about what what I've used and then what's still left to be used. And, you know, so a lot, all these ideas, they're, they just work really well on a piano, I feel. And they're not, they wouldn't work with, you know, a traditional band of somebody singing and they have maybe too much information also at the times where there's just a lot of melody, but, or it just really works on piano. So a lot of this cinema stuff, it was almost like piano, piano almost represented like a soundtrack of a, of a movie that was never made, you know, songs from film that hadn't been made yet. And that was sort of the ethos. It was like, I wanted, I, I think I wrote down four different points as like a mission statement before I started recording in Denver. And it was the first one was don't use too many strings. I think the second one was like, keep the mistakes. And it might have even just been like the third one was don't, don't do too many strings. I did that twice because I really was like, I don't know. I wanted to make something that I had an idea of what I wanted to make. And I think what I set out to make was, uh, achieve that. And that was really fun and exciting to, to work on that in that way. And um, yeah, some of the songs, like I said, go back, you know, a decade or more. And then some of them were written white hot in the moment of just like, oh, I need a bridge. I need a verse. One song off Piano Piano called Possessed was written in probably the span of 15 minutes where my son at the time, he was about two years old. We were in the living room. He was sitting on the couch and I had a guitar that was alternately tuned, you know, it was tuned differently than the standard tuning. And I was just playing the guitar, not even thinking about what I was doing. And I started going like, ding, ding, doing this thing that became the song Possessed. The reason I called it Possessed was because I, you know, I don't know, I quite literally became overtaken with that song idea. I didn't realize what I was doing when I was doing it, but I just noticed I was doing this thing and then went to like a sort of, chorus and then start playing the chorus on the guitar so everything was written on the guitar believe it or not and then I when my son went to bed I ran downstairs to the other piano where it was a little bit quieter in the basement so my wife and son could sleep and I was working on that down there and it was just this really rare cool moment that you're right place right time you're firing in all cylinders and sometimes it's the last thing you expect to happen I read this quote, I think, I don't know who said it, if it was like Steven Spielberg about making movies, whoever it was, it's a very accomplished, like world-renowned storyteller, director, whatever, writer. And I think they basically had said, if you set out to make the movie you intended to make, then you failed somewhere along the way. And I really loved that because I took it to mean you know, you have an idea of what you want to do creatively. And if you just do that exactly the way you envisioned it, it probably means somewhere along the way you didn't allow yourselves, didn't allow yourself to take risks. You didn't allow yourself to, to, to bend and to, to submit to the task at hand. And I think that that was really cool. You know, that song came out of nowhere. I had no intention of, recording that song because I didn't know that song existed yet. And that was just a really cool moment. And that's happened before too. Like for example, with the Lumineers, there's a song called Angela. 
that was written in the studio. And uh, sometimes these things just happen and then they become like your favorite things down the road. And they, they're like the best surprises, you know, it's like meeting the person you're going to marry randomly at a place that you, you have these maybe preconceived notions of, Oh, this is where I'm going to meet the person I'm going to marry. And then you do the most random thing, not thinking about what you're doing and your life has changed in an extraordinary manner. So, yeah. I like that paraphrase from the standpoint of, I think too often when we set out to create something, we're so bogged down in making, in, in hewing as close to the initial idea as possible that we tend to constrain certain elements of it. And, and I would like extend that to apply to life in general. Mm. You're in a rock band. Obviously you've had a good deal of success, but, and especially in the early days when, when you are struggling and you are comparing yourself to, to your peers and you're not having the exact career that you set out to have, it's easy to really spiral. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. In the early days, you know, I, I know obviously it, it took, the bands a while to i think it was it's that sort of classic code of like you know it takes 10 years to have overnight success what 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 kept you going it was wild (laughs) it was awesome it was crazy just some context i met my wife uh she is from italy born and raised so she was living with me in denver and the idea was, you know, once we had our son, you know, we, we, we did begin to start thinking about maybe moving and just playing with that idea. So it wasn't like I just was, you know, American, like through a dart, the dartboard was like, we're going to tour in Italy. But, you know, that's where she's from. Uh, and I knew I was moving into like a built-in community. You know, her parents live here. A lot of her friends live here. She knows the city really well. So that was that was something that was really cool uh, for me too because in Denver, I made a lot of friends, had a lot of friends. Between a lot of friends leaving Denver and between me being on the road all the time, uh, losing touch with people and just – it almost like my wife almost knew more about Denver than I did at times just because – I toured so much and started to lose touch with the city and which was not like a good feeling, you know, it's really amazing to tour, but to lose touch with the city and lose touch with people. Um, a lot of uh, like, and it was, it was pretty wild. A lot of my friends, a lot of people I loved and cared about, uh, they didn't leave Denver, which was hard for me, which was a challenge. So yeah, going to another country, a foreign country where I don't speak Italian it was crazy because we went there, I think, at the end of August or early September 2020. Now, at the time, if you remember, Italy was one of the first countries hit the hardest with COVID. It was really bad. They understood the severity of the pandemic and the toll it was taking, arguably long before other parts of the world, particularly America, did. So when I got, by the time we got there, um, everything was on lockdown. There was zones based on different colors. Now, at the time we got there, everything was a red zone, which is the highest <laughs> alarmed color you can have in this Yeah, zone. that tracks. And, uh, yeah, so we had bought a house that wasn't ready for a while. So it was me and my wife and our son living in my in-law's house, now, they're amazing people, lovely people. I love them. But we were pretty crammed in the same house. And it was just wild. I mean, it was a red zone at the time. So to go to the to, to go to the bar, you know, 
which is what they call a cafe. Uh, sorry, you go to the cafe and get a latte or whatever, get a coffee drink. It was one in, one out, basically. Mask on. And September turned into October, turned into November. So now we're dealing with very gray, cold, wintry months. And the parks, the playgrounds had quite literally like yellow caution tape over them. And you couldn't, you really couldn't do anything, you know. And it was really hard. And I, not even trying to get political about it, I honestly thought, okay, I agree. This is probably, this. Is, unfortunately, this is probably literally what's needed. But at the same time, this is a massive challenge as a father of a young child. And everybody had challenges. It's not just me. I don't want somebody to hear that and think, oh, this guy had challenges. You know, the poor musician who had to be home. It was, you know, one of the pros of this time, if I can say that, was that I had a lot more time with my wife. I had a lot more time with my son. I got to see a lot of moments that maybe your average father or parent wouldn't get to see. That was beautiful. But anyone with a two-year-old knows that entertaining them inside all the time is really a challenge. And not getting fresh air because it was so cold at times or not having nowhere to go. You know, we could we could go out with our gloves and our hat, but or like, you know, you go to a park and you play with a ball for so long, but then you'd see other kids and you're like, oh, we can't, you know, you don't interact with them and all of that combined, it was really challenging. And then um, we got to move into our new house, which was exciting. And then as things started to open up slowly but surely, that was amazing. You know, Now living here, believe it or not, I've been here three years. A lot of the three years I have still been on tour doing various, doing a lot of work. But I feel like I probably missed out in that first year between COVID regulations and between touring with the Lumineers. Um you know, I feel like I'm just even starting to get a taste of what it's like to live in Italy. Still being three years in the amount, the rate at which I travel, the rate at which I leave, um, I'm still getting to know the city. And that's actually, that's a good thing. You know, like even last year I was gone from my house for seven months. So this idea that I, I, I get, I, you know, I have a mail-in address. I sometimes joke <laughs> that's in Italy that the mail-in address has existed for three years, but I haven't been here three years, which I think is, also preserved when people move to a new city, a new country, a new state, whatever, there's that honeymoon phase where you're like, this is awesome. I'll never get tired of this. And then, you know, eventually real life sets in and you start to know the coffee places and you know the pizzeria and you know where you're going to go grocery shop. And at some point the high inevitably um, wanes in some degree. But that's one of the double-edged sword aspects of this job is that um, you're constantly going but you're also constantly coming and, and, you know, that yin and yang of it is, uh, is really cool. So yeah, long story short, love being here. And I still feel like, um, it's been really inspirational too, just to be in a different city and to see a different culture that's completely different than the United States and just a lot of things. And, you know, our, our daughter was born last October. So she's about 20 months now and yeah, raising two kids in Italy I grew up in Ramsey, New Jersey, and this is totally different than the experience I had, and uh, it's pretty wild. There's this thing that I've noticed when I talk to creative people specifically where they'll tell me in hushed tones, like, oh, actually, you know, the pandemic is really good for me because I finally had a time to do all these things that I wouldn't have done otherwise. 
Obviously, you don't want to you don't want to say that the pandemic was great, but but at the same time, um, there was opportunity there. Like certainly, there was opportunity for for you for somebody who travels so much who who I assume just doesn't have a lot of downtime, doesn't have a lot of free time to be to be creative, and certainly not to to work on your your solo stuff. Obviously, the band has been the big focus for you for for a long time now was that when it was clear that it was time that, that it would be, as you said, weeks or months, was, was, was that a big focus for you to finally be able to really start working on some of these projects that you had been, I guess, unintentionally putting off? Yeah. I think that there was something about, maybe I'll say this in a hush tone. (laughs) There was probably the most fertile creative period of my entire life. COVID had hit. We had all gone home. I finished Piano Piano, wrote new stuff in the meantime of that. In addition, right after that, went right into like kicking ideas back and forth with Wes, the singer of the Lumineers. And just like, I think because I had just worked so much on one project that wasn't the Lumineers, I was able to go into album four called Brightside with Wes in a way that I felt really like clear and awake and active and not burnt out because I had just worked on something completely different. So yes, I was going from one musical project to a different musical project, but it was a completely different musical projects, obviously. And that was really, I think, beneficial for me to like to do that and then to go into the Lumineers writing with him. I felt really like awake and clear and focused and it was really great and um allowed me i think to just be if not even more present for the lumineers just i don't know there was something about it where i had these awakening these fresh legs fresh set it was really hard to start piano piano i remember that though it was like torture because there was no inspiration at all it was like trying to draw water from the most dry well ever there was literally i was just like there was no inspiration i i really was like holy shit this is like this is the worst case scenario an invisible microscopic thing that's taking control of everyone's lives like this is i was like this is the worst case scenario like what could be worse something that you can't see is extremely contagious that's affecting everybody at all levels of life, all ecosystems, doesn't matter how much money you make, doesn't matter where you live, <laughs> literally pervaded all aspects of living. And I don't know, it just, yeah, it was like awakening, like, or eye-opening that, you know, as humans, we probably complain about people more than any other aspect, other people more than any other aspect in our life. And that's the very thing that we need too. you know, even people that are extremely introverted, we need, everybody needs to be around people at some point. And it was heartbreaking too. It was like, now I'm finally home. And my parents live in Denver still. And they were like, you know, essentially right down the road, but we didn't really see each other. You know, my dad, he's older and he's, he has a, something else that's compromised. And if he had ever gotten COVID, you know, that would have been really bad, I, I thought. And um, so I didn't really get to see them, which was like, it was so close, but, you could, you know, you couldn't reach out and touch it. 
So eventually, like, just forced the inspiration. Once I got going, I became obsessed and couldn't stop. And it was really, that was really fun. And I give so much props to my wife because, you know, then she's, you know, we're in the same house. But thankfully, there was, like, a basement. And I could go down to the basement and record. And our son, you know, he was young at the time, too. So he would still take a nap. He would take a nap upstairs with my wife. And then my wife would maybe text me, like, okay, start recording now. And then I would record you know, and then sometimes he'd sleep for 45 minutes, which would suck for me. Or sometimes he'd sleep for almost two hours and I'd get a lot of done. And then he'd wake up and be like, okay, well, I can no longer record on the grand piano. But when they go to sleep, I'll go downstairs in the basement, work on firewood, which is this other nickname I have for this other piano that's a lot softer. And uh, they wouldn't be able to hear it when they were sleeping. So not to mention recording strings with an orchestra called the Fames Orchestra. They're an orchestra based out of Macedonia, which is in Europe, I believe. Uh, about eight hours, maybe ahead ahead of Denver time. So recorded a few songs with them remotely, and even that was eerie. There was like like this us talking, except you replaced with forty Macedonian orchestral amazing musicians all wearing masks, playing this like intense classical music. And I have video of that. I'm like, this is fucking surreal. This is like crazy. These people are doing this still. And it, it was beautiful though, in a way too. Like, wow, you know, this is how much this all means to us that it was one of those things where it all just became like science and medicine can help cure us, but music and art will save us. I really just, that, that distinction dawned on me in a very profound way where I was like, we need both. We need people to be looking out for us to keep us safe. But like just not getting sick is not a life. You know what I mean? Just not being in harm's way. That's not a life. It's not being sick. It's being healthy. And then also doing stuff with our time that is uh, connecting with other people and, and connecting with your children connecting with your partner, whatever it may be. And uh, even taking like something as simple as like fell in love bike riding, like me and my wife, we were bike riding every day, one, probably two times a day, once in the morning as summer came and then one, not in the day, but then, you know, as the sun was going down after dinner, that like saved us too. Like biking was like just whether it was around the block or like doing a little loop around Denver, that was something safe we could do the whole family. And it was, uh, it was great. I'll always cherish those, those bike rides we took. You mentioned this idea of being more present with the band than, you know, perhaps you had previously. And, and I think that's something that everybody struggles with from time to time. But I wonder when you're in a band that gets really big, really fast, whether, whether it can be difficult to be present when you get swept up in all of that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Again, there was, um, I just saw an interview with Michael Richards from Seinfeld who talked about, he was on Jerry Seinfeld's show, um, comedians, comedians and cars. Yeah. And he, he said something that I thought was really honest. He said, you know, when I was on the show, I wish I had enjoyed myself more. But I was so preoccupied with getting it right, doing like just being there and almost like being so present <laughs> that trying to get it right so much 
that not taking time to appreciate it. I don't know if that necessarily encapsulates the way I experienced it, but it was like, there were moments where like, I, I wish I had enjoyed it more, but I don't know with my personality, if I could have enjoyed it more, I'm probably a little bit more akin to like George Costanza, the character from Seinfeld, where, you know, him and Jerry, they get a pilot finally. And then George's worst nightmare is that he's going to die because the universe will not allow him to be successful. Somewhere in that joke, there is some realism, I think, within all of us. Like, this is too good to be true. This can't be happening. It all started when, like, I left. I was working at a Japanese uh, sushi restaurant called the Sushi Den in Denver. And I left there. I left there one time for, like, a month. I went on tour, came back. And then I'd go on tour, and then I'd come back. And then there was this moment where I was, like, I remember talking to the manager, Takuma. I was, like, I'm not coming back. Bye. I love you guys. Thank you so much for the opportunity, truly, but I'm not coming back. And I remember as a joke, because I didn't know what the hell was going to happen, but as a joke, I like autographed like the timesheet of like where my name was and I, I was working next Monday and Tuesday. And I was like, yeah, you go talk about this is going to be worth something. But we, I, none of us really had an idea about what was about to happen. All we knew was that we were going to go on tour and that the album was going to come out and that we were let's try to make money doing the thing we love the most, which was music and art. And then um, even like probably for the next 12 months, even when I knew I wasn't going back, that, that we were playing on, you know, we did the Craig Ferguson show playing Ho Hey, and then we went on Conan O'Brien, and then we did David Letterman, and then we did Saturday Night Live, and then we played on the Grammys. And at that point I was like, okay, I'm probably not going back to the Japanese restaurant anytime soon. But I kid you not, I had a recurring nightmare many times where I would wake up almost like in a cold sweat being like, like the, the nightmare was basically that I was walking back into the restaurant and I actually didn't mind working there. It wasn't like that place was a nightmare. It was just that, oh no, something had happened with the band that I was going back to this job. And it makes sense. I mean, you know, my father did a really great job of instilling the value of a dollar and instilling like... Even before I moved to Denver from Ramsey, New Jersey, it was like, okay, well, you're going to make this amount of money before you go there because you're going to try to become a musician. I'm like, you know, I want to help you stack the deck. And I worked as a bar, as a bar back and a, as a bus boy at a restaurant in, in Ramsey just to make a little bit of extra cash before taking the plunge going out to Denver. And even when I was in Denver, I had to work other jobs before um, being able to, but I had this recurring nightmare when I was like, you know, going to work still and it makes sense because i was you know at the time i was probably 26 27 and for so many years for at least a decade i had been you know ingrained like you work a normal job you take the safe job and that's how you make money it's 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 an obvious tried and true thing i think (laughs) all throughout the world so to speak and i think um yeah it was really scary and then you know, shows were starting to sell out before we even got there. And then the venue would get upgraded to a bigger venue. That was really exciting, but I think it was just happening so fast that I didn't know how to enjoy it at times. There were plenty of moments, like, don't get me wrong, playing Conan O'Brien, meeting him. uh, He was like an idol to me. I was like, I watched him every night. Like he was always after Jay Leno in New Jersey. And, you know, he was the late, late show and, 
it was like this holy shit moment of like I'm meeting Conan O'Brien. We're on the show where I discovered falling in love with like Wilco or seeing all these other things. It was just really mind blowing. And playing on Saturday Night Live is like one of the coolest things I still think we'll ever do as a band. It was so cool. And we went from a van to a tour bus and then we were playing Europe. I think the problem was at times was that we didn't have a lot of breaks. And I think that, you know, there's this new Post Malone song that just came out and he says, uh, I live my life on overdrive. And I don't know what the other lyrics are, I forget them, but just I live my life on overdrive. And I felt very much like I was doing that. I was really enjoying the moment, but also like probably didn't know how to take care of myself, didn't know how to like get proper sleep and didn't know how to find like a way to recharge my batteries completely before the next show, before the next tour. And um, I think that caught up with me in different ways, but you know, now I've never enjoyed touring more. I've never enjoyed everything more. It's just, um, it's just been so great. But looking back, yeah, there was moments I wish I maybe enjoyed it more. But again, it was so crazy. That phrase blowing up, you know, when something blows up, what happens? Well, it blows up and then lots of millions of pieces go everywhere. It's an interesting term to describe success. It's probably the most appropriate, though, because, you know, with sudden success or sudden fame or sudden whatever, Categorically, it was a big change, no matter how you slice it. And yeah, it was just a big change for all of us within the band. It changed everything quickly. And, you know, somewhere along the way, we all managed to figure out how to deal with it and how to appreciate it and how to... For me, the most important thing that was always... It wasn't playing the Grammys. It wasn't being on the cover of Rolling Stone or whatever, you know, it was, wasn't money. It was writing songs and then continuing to write songs. How do we reinvest our time and our energy and our love from one success into the next success? And something that really stuck with me, um, got to meet this guy named Paul Smith. He's a big fashion designer. And I would say I'm blessed enough to call him a friend at this point. And He's just a very insightful person, you know. He's He's been through it all. And he told us one time, he said, listen, at some point in your career, at some point, stop looking up. Stop looking ahead. Start to make decisions laterally. Laterally, look where you're at. And I just thought that was the most brilliant thing because I think it's almost like if you have – $50 and you're like, I want to invest this in the stock market. Oh, I made $100. Well, now what? Well, now I want to make $200. At some point, you're like, I have enough. Let's go have a really nice dinner and enjoy this money because that's the point of life. <laughs> it's not how much can I maximize my profit. And I think the same with music and art is like, it's not, well, let me make more music so I can like fly privately so that I can like, so that I have to tour so much to like keep my lavish lifestyle. It's like, it really is so basic. Like that thing behind me, a piano, how can I continue to sit at that with my partner and make, continue to make great music? That's really it. And then other things come into the equation, obviously being a great father, being a, being a great husband, blah, blah, blah. All these things combined. But 
when it comes just strictly talking about art and music, that was always the goal. It was to make an album so that we could make another album and et cetera. So there are so many stories out there of people, you know, ch- changing directions or not being able to sort of like capitalize on that success. And and when you're in this band, you know, when you do have the momentum behind you, you do want to keep that going for as long as possible. But maybe one of the side effects of that is that you don't get the time to work on these other projects, these side things that you're doing now, because it it took you a long time to get there. I mean, this the, the, you know this you know you've got this new ambient record and the, the solo piano record only came out a couple of years ago so you were very focused on the lumineers for most of that time i think too it comes with age it comes with you know as soon as as soon as you have kids you you try to become a master of time management that's so important um your whole life changes obviously especially having two kids, your life changes double and it gets really crazy. And if you have more than two kids, then, you know, props to you. I don't know how you could ever do that. Go with God. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think that, you know, just to even give you an idea, like I just put out this record with Taylor Dupree, which I'm so proud of that just came out. And then I just finished six weeks of tour in Europe with the Lumineers, like literally like two weeks ago. Six days ago, I literally just did four concerts around Italy with my Piano Piano project. And I'm leaving again for another concert in Italy in two days. And I'm leaving for a six-week Lumineers tour in two weeks. Managing all these things 10 years ago, five years ago even, would have been impossible. I think I've just gotten really good at like understanding when to pull the trigger on projects and when to be like, no, I, there's no way I can do that. I know that about myself. I just won't have time and I, I'd rather, I only want to work on projects when I can do it full blown, full court press. And if I can't, I don't want to do the project. I, I hate that idea of not being able to be fully immersed in the project. So only taking on projects that I can handle. And yeah, so even touring with this piano piano project has been amazing and being able to chip away at the second album of piano piano and, you know, being really proud of this Taylor Dupree record and, Looking forward to working on album five with the Lumineers. Uh, all these things, it's, uh, yeah, it's been really rewarding. Like, so rewarding. The Taylor Dupree album is interesting for a number of reasons. Um, you know, I, I, ambient music has been really important to me during the pandemic. There's, there's something about it. You know, I, I was going through some health issues and depression from that. And the pandemic, mm-hmm. I think everybody was struggling with that to a certain extent. There was something about, when I got to points when I couldn't listen to music with lyrics, there was something about ambient that I really connected with in a meaningful way. And I don't know, maybe it relates to this idea of being present. Um, maybe it's meditative. You know, I know that you did some work with the, the, the calm app, mm-hmm. but there's something, there's something about this music that is ostensibly for a lot of people, background music that somehow really pulls me into the moment. I feel like that's what instrumental music does to me is that it's, I equate it with good examples. When you read Harry Potter books, you have an idea in your head of what Harry Potter looks like. And at this point it's probably Daniel Radcliffe because (laughs) the movies were so popular, but before the movies come out, you take a book like Harry Potter and you're like, ah, this is what Harry looks like. This is what Hermione might look like, blah, blah, blah. 
And then when you see the movie, the movie's like, this is what they look like because these are the actors and actresses we hired to be these characters. I feel like music with words, you know, you hear the singer singing. And even, I say this now living in Italy, I listen to a lot of Italian music just casually that's coming into my brain. And there's a lot of times I don't understand what they're talking about, but you, you process it. You're like, well, that's a female singer. That's a male singer. They're, they're screaming. Maybe they're emotional. Maybe they're sad. There's all these like indicators of what you're supposed to be thinking about. And that's the amazing thing about songs with words is that you can hear like a one lyric and it can just tear you open and break your heart because you think about your child or you think about somebody you lost or you think about a great day, you think about a sad day because of a specific set of words. The amazing thing about instrumental music is that I think it, I think the only music that people like when it comes to instrumental music is that there's a specific tone or timbre or some sort of emotion that gets unlocked within that person. And then it almost becomes like the selfish endeavor, similar to music with words, but really on like, like that times 10 when you, when you listen to something instrumental, I think inevitably you go to this thing that you once experienced in a very heavy, but in a beautiful heaviness, not like, ah, this is heavy, I hate it. It's like, ah, this is so heavy and I'm dying right now. <laughs> it's so good. It's so heavy and so it's so uh, emotional. I think with emotion, instrumental music, that's what it does to me. I think I when I hear something, you're just like, ah, this is happening right now and I'm hearing this thing and it's just so evocative and provocative, whatever, and just so uh, stimulating to the brain. And that's been something cool too. Like when I was showing my peers and friends and family members stuff from Piano Piano and stuff from this Taylor collaboration, one of the coolest comments I got was from a guy I don't really know that well, but we're like, we follow each other on Twitter and it's like a loose relationship, but we're friendly with each other. And I, I respect what he does and he respects what I do, do, what I do. And he had messaged me like, yo, loving the piano, piano album, brother. This is super cool. And makes me think of things that I never have thought about for something they affected. Like it makes me think of things in my life that I haven't thought about for a while or, or rather like it makes me think things that I never think sort of this like redundant, simple idea. And I was like, that's really cool. Actually, that's my job is done. I think that with this music, the instrumental, you know, stuff I've been working on, whether it is piano, piano or the Taylor Dupree side project. Um, yeah. It's trying to, it's trying to present something to the listener that, and the first litmus test is always me. When I hit spacebar, when I listen back and I go, ah, oh, wow, that's really moving me. That's when I know it's done. That's when I, or that's when I know I'm on the beginning of a shitload of work. <laughs> when I hear something, I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Now I got to make it, now I got to make sense of it and make it, make it sense to make me, you know, make it sen- make sense to me so that other people understand it as well as I do. And that's where all the hard work comes from when working on music. But that's really the first sign is like the light bulb is like, Oh, it's hitting me in this very profound way. That's awesome. And sometimes you work on something for five hours or five days and you're like, man, I really tried and this is not doing it for me. And sometimes you, you get a little bit of luck. You get, 
the universe is like, I'm going to give this one to you easy and it's going to be a two foot putt. And here's the idea and just don't mess it up. Just that's the idea. Just make it, just don't mess it up. Keep it cool. It's already cool. And those are rare moments. I feel like any musician or artist, probably any writer will tell you, at least for me, I have to work extremely hard to make anything cool. I think <laughs> it's never easy and uh, it never comes quickly. So, but that's, that's the, that's the process for me. Between those two poles, where did this Taylor Dupree project fit? Because it strikes me that it started off as something extremely different than what it ended up being. Yeah. So it was really cool. Like Taylor, I love his record Northern. I fell in love with it years ago when it came out, which I think was 2006, if I'm not mistaken. And over the years we had kind of become like, you know, we had talked to each other a little bit, never met each other, but just talked friendly and, I think mutual admirers of each other's projects. And then he hit me up and was like, you know, would you be interested in sort of covering my album Northern? I want to do like a re-release of it, but maybe like a 15 year re-release, something like some sort of marking of an anniversary. And because of piano piano, he heard all the piano I was doing. And I said, listen, let me think about that. I think it's a cool idea. And I started listening to it. I was playing it in my house in Denver and I started, you know, I got on a grand piano and I started playing piano ideas against his original album. And after like 45 seconds, even 30 seconds, I was like, wow, this is cool. And I stopped myself because I didn't want to, oh, I didn't want to like beat it to death. I didn't want to suffocate it like I do sometimes with ideas. I wanted it to stay fresh and exciting and playful like a child. I wanted to preserve that. To be clear, in that er that early iteration, you were playing along with the music. You weren't trying to replicate it. I literally put on Spotify over the speakers above my piano at home in Denver and started playing my piano against the Spotify recording and was like, ah, this is going to be fun. And really, like, I'm going to... This is going to be cool. I, and I emailed him back. It was like back. you collaborating with a piece of music. Yeah, already. Emailed him back. Long story short, he didn't get back to me for at least a month. And I thought, I was like, oh, I guess he didn't like my ideas. And then he sort of was like, hey, did you get my email? And I was like, no. Like, did you get my email? And he's like, oh, no, I went to spam or trash. So I guess my response, <clears throat> excuse me, for some reason went to his spam or trash. So the project almost died. Thankfully, he uh, hit me back. So I didn't know that, obviously. I was waiting for his response. So that was kind of a funny tidbit about this this collaboration. And then we started. The way we literally worked on the album was this. I said, send me all of the final recordings, the ones that are out on you know Spotify and wherever else. And basically what I did was I said, instead of me covering the album, which I think would be boring for me and also not yield the best result. What if I sort of wrote some pieces and reacted to what you're doing? That's, you know, that is sort of specific, but also vague at the same time. So I said, listen, let's just, let's just do like a zoom call. And then there's this program called audio movers, which is like lossless audio quality. It's insane with 0.1 second latency. So it's very real time. It's amazing. And, uh, I would play his song in pro tools. And then I would, perform on a piano and this was all in Denver and I did uh, I would play an idea for the whole song and I remember one of the first takes I did he was like wow that just gave me goosebumps and I was like hell yeah 
Me too. That was really cool, I thought. And I would do maybe three or four full passes of the songs. You know, people that don't know the record, the original record, Northern by Taylor Dupree, every song is, I think, at least six minutes. There's one song, maybe over 10 minutes. They're all very long songs. I would call them long. Not bad, though. That's not a bad thing. They're long, but they need to be long for his storytelling and his DNA. It's, they're beautiful. Like, length literally doesn't matter. They are, they're amazing bodies of work. And so I would do three or four, you know, full passes. And then maybe he would say, hey, I feel like this part is getting a little bit busy. Can you like do something simple? Or, hey, I like this idea. And then we would focus in on maybe like this section, this section, this section. And then typically I'd, I'd always do at least one pass of like, let me try a bunch of stuff, throw some stuff at the wall. None of this is probably going to work. It's probably all going to be bad. And then, you know, nine times out of 10, there's always like something kind of cool or usable in that chaotic mess. The best part about this project for me was that I was able to just give all that piano to Taylor and he sifted through. So I was able to just kind of be like this child where I, I brought all the ideas to the table. I wasn't just like blacking out playing stuff. I had two or three preconceived notions of what I wanted to do on every song. But then again, the best part of every song was the surprise. Maybe I'd send, you know, maybe I would do like arbitrarily section A, B, and C, and then just be like, you know, sift through it. Good luck, you know, <laughs> have fun. And then maybe like two months later, he sent me, and maybe he did it in like B, C, A, and also changed B. And, you know, and I was like, wow, what a cool, or, or he would take like piano ideas that I didn't ever expect to, to put on top of each other. And I would just be like, whoa, that's so cool. I never would have done that. That's the best part about working with somebody else in a good collaboration is that you take an idea that you think is really cool or just even good, but good enough to send to somebody. And then they take it and make it better. That's the best ever that like when that happens it's the best it's such a high and it's such a that's just literally the best and that happened a lot with this album i think i'd like to think vice versa too but there's just a lot with i'd send something to taylor and then he'd do it i'd be like oh wow that's really cool but you know let me i would since the project was so dense and there were so many layers and it wasn't like your traditional verse chorus verse chorus bridge big chorus outro I would have to get the entire session from him on Pro Tools and work on it remotely. And I think I worked on this record at times in like all over the world, maybe places even like Singapore and India, Canada, Los Angeles, because I was on a big tour with the band. And that's how we finished the record. We never met once in person all for this record. We did everything remotely. And it was really rewarding and really cool. I'm really proud of it. You mentioned Firewood earlier, and yeah. I was watching you talk about effectively recording um, the tones of, of the piano uh, yeah. for a music plugin. Um, you also alluded to this idea of embracing mistakes when, I think specifically when talking about the piano piano record. And to me, those two things are fairly connected, you know, playing, playing an imperfect instrument imperfectly is this is that the kind of thing that you have to um come to over time you know to, to be able to sort of banish this idea of making 
a thing as perfect as possible? I think, I think this is what happens. I think that it's almost like even right now, I'm trying to find a way to say something eloquent and succinct. And when you're not thinking about something and you're just on a roll, you're just on a, you're just riffing, you'll say something succinct and cool. It just makes sense. And when you're trying to do something <laughs> succinct, it probably won't work as well. And that's a, you know, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is like something called demoitis. And that's something where a lot of musicians will deal with that. And I think that that was very, I was very afflicted by demoitis on the first two Lumineers records, the self-titled debut, and then Cleopatra, the album. Um, songs like Ophelia and songs like Sleep on the Floor and songs like Cleopatra, you know, we would do things in the studio just like without thinking about it, whether it's a drum beat, a piano thing, maybe vocally something West did, melodically something West did. Something, you know, a quick reverb that you threw on that you didn't think about. And then you would spend so much time trying to recreate that in the, in the real studio. And a lot of times you're like, well, let's just use the, the thing we did. It already sounds great. Why redo it? It's almost like, oh, I love that painting, but let me redo it. It's like, well, no, you love that painting. I think with, I think especially with piano performances, though, I can tell when I'm listening to something I'm doing back where I can tell I'm anxious or trying to accomplish something. And, you know, sometimes you're doing something and your right hand has a mind of its own and it starts to do a different melody. And I can't tell you how many times I've been working on piano, piano or even luminaire stuff or whatever project I'm working on, or I'm listening back to a piano, something I did where I'm just like, who cares? It's a quick demo. I got to record this real quick before I forget the idea. And I'm like working with other people who have better ears, other musicians where I'm like, I need help. What did I play? Because this is so cool and it just feels so nice and I don't know how to redo it. And that happens a lot of times, honestly, with me. I feel like where I do something when I'm not thinking about it and I fall in love with it. And then when you're thinking about it and you're like, the mics are set up, you have your coffee and you hear the click. Do, 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 do. And then your mind kind of goes blank. It's trying to get to that place of, you know, it's not literally keeping the mistakes. Sometimes it is, but it's not like, it's not try to perform bad and play wrong notes. It's not literally that, but it is like, go into it with, you know, I know what I want to do 75, maybe to 90%. And that the whole that notion, you know, harking back to what we said before about go into the recording with an idea of what you want to what you want to lay down, what you want to immortalize, but know that like something's going to happen in the recording that's not going to be scripted. Just make sure that you are open and willing enough to recognize that that one thing that happened that wasn't meant to happen is probably going to be the coolest thing for someone else listening. So trying to make sure that you're in that receptive space so that when that one thing does happen, that's probably, that may, that very well may be like your favorite aspect of that record or that song down the road. 